He is the word in the beginning. And did Mary really understand? Probably not. That that baby was the Lord of all creation. That's exactly what we want to talk about today. And I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to read some there. Because we're going to talk about the beginning of Christmas. Did you know that Christmas, what we celebrate is Christmas. And we should celebrate it, not just during this time of year. And we're going to, I think, talk more about that in the weeks ahead. But, but the thing about it is, is... Um, uh, we, we celebrate it as believers every day, right? It's the greatest gift of all. So it's not just one time a year. We celebrate it every single day that Christ came. But it started a little over 2,000 years ago, but it actually started much further back than that. When was the beginning of Christmas? It was probably like forever ago. You know it? There are notes online if you're on our Facebook page or you got your YouVersion app. You can pull them up and hopefully you use that and add some to it. And uh, there's a saying, uh, a poem. It actually comes from a sermon. And you, you've seen it before. It's been quoted a lot on Christmas cards and things like that. Uh, it's called One Solitary Life. And the best reason is attributed to several people, sometimes to anonymous. But the best research I could do was a pastor that lived many years ago named Dr. James Allen Francis. And here's what he said. Quote, I am far within the mark when I say that all of all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the lives of men upon the earth as powerfully as that one solitary life, end quote. And that's the truth. Um, so before John gets into his story of the gospel, he gives us a prologue. Now, John is writing this gospel many years later than what the other gospels had been written. They had been circulated and people were, were familiar with them. John comes at it from a different angle than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is one who is a first-hand eyewitness testimony. He was with Jesus from the early days. And so, but he gives us an introduction here as he gets into his gospel and telling the story. And he gives us some deeper insight into who Jesus is that we don't get anywhere else in the, in the other gospels, in, at least. And he sets up some of the major themes of his gospel. And that is the deity of Christ. That he wasn't just human, he was also divine. That Christ is the light and the life in a world shrouded with darkness. Christ is the perfect Lamb of God that is fulfillment of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, several decades, as I said, had come and gone since Jesus had ascended back into heaven. And before the beloved disciple John passes from the scene, the Holy Spirit uses him uh, to pin down these words and open a window so that we can see Christ more clearly and know him more deeply. All right? And so I want to read this. I want to start in verse 1. So you follow along with me. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. You follow along with whatever you have there. If you've got the notes pulled up, it should be there for you. But make some notes, okay? And let's take this in so we can take it home with us, right? These are powerful words. Listen very carefully. He says, John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning, does that sound familiar? Was the Word. And the Word 
was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he begins to introduce, John the Apostle begins to introduce John the Baptist in his ministry. We talked about John the Baptist last week, uh, and he talks about him. But let's skip on down to verse 14 when he picks back up. Because he's talked about in the beginning was the word and everything made through him. He hasn't identified who this is. But then in verse 14 he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John, John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out that this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his, Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Then he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so he calls him the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word. Now, the, uh, the actual Greek word that John writes down there is the word logos. And maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've studied that before. Uh, but there are several different Greek words that could be translated into our English word. Word. <laughs> Say that enough times it begins to sound weird. But anyway, uh, but logos, the, it, it, is, it is this. This is what that word. This is a term. This is a word that both the Greeks... And the Jews, the Romans, Greeks, the Gentiles, and the Jews would be, uh, have, be familiar with. And uh, in the Greek mindset, they, they understood this as being, to them, it was this impersonal, creative force of the universe, right? And, 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 but John's going to identify for these people, you need to know exactly who this is. Uh, and, and so that, that word logos means the expression of thought as embodying a concept or an idea. So the words that come out are actually uh, from the thoughts and the ideas that we have. And so that's kind of the, 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 the basis of it there. So here's what it, what it illustrates. The word logos, uh, word, <laughs> is not merely the name for an idea, but it's the idea itself expressed. Okay? As embodying a concept or an idea. Now, the word is not merely the name for the idea, right? But it's that idea expressed. Jesus expressed to us all who God is. He's the word. Now, if you go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, what was it? God spoke, right? John starts off in the beginning, the word. Who was this? And they would understand that term, logos, would be this one. This one who is the creator. This one who is the everything. 
He said, I'm going to tell you who he is. And uh, so this is where John begins and that he's telling us that Jesus is the exact expression or embodiment of God. He's the word. Okay. And so let's look at that. He's the word. Uh, you, you, You can see that he's teaching us that Jesus is one in essence with the father yet distinct in his person. And you're going to see that come out here. He is, the first of all, the eternal word. That's who Jesus is. He's not just the word, but he's the eternal word. Because he says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, he's already there. John begins his gospel, kind of like Genesis 1 begins. And we immediately, it's like we slide through a time tunnel all the way back to eternity past. Uh, in eternity, before creation of the universe, right? Before the creation, before time itself, before time began, there existed the everlasting triune God. That's what John is calling our attention to. And that language is very direct because he uses the word in in the beginning. It's before the foundations of the world were made. Before the stars and all the planets in the universe. If Christ were only the beginning of Jehovah's creation, as some false teachers claim, then it would properly read from the beginning. But when he says beginning, he's already there. It reminds us of what Moses... Now, Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses. Um, and a prayer that Moses prayed. It reminds me of what is taught there in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from, get this, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Eternity past. I mean, you have Genesis 1-1, John 1-1. Before that, how far before that? Forever before that. Mind blown. See, as humans, we can't comprehend. We can't relate. And why some people don't want to believe in God unless they can comprehend and grasp all of it with the gray matter that we've got. He wouldn't be much of a God if he'd fit between your ears. Or mine. I mean, uh, they say that we only use 10% of the ability that our brain has. And some of us have never quite gotten there, right? Some of us illustrate that more, you know, openly than others. Thank you, Wayne. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, the, the whole point is God surpasses anything. See, the one reason why people want to be able to contain this in their minds is if you have a God that you can totally, and the whole concept of who he is, if you can contain it within your mind and you can process it and you can explain it all in your human terms and your own logic, then he would be a God that you could control, right? See, that's, that's the problem that people have. But he blows all of that out of the water. But it is not only in the beginning, but did you notice he said, in the beginning was the word. He uses the imperfect tense of a, of a, of a verb that is to be, a, a verb of being. So the way it's worded in the grammar of the original language 
obviously excludes origin. He designed it that way. It is excluding the possibility of the origin of this one he's calling the Word. There's no beginning to him. If he wanted to tell us about the origin of Jesus, he would not have used language like this. Instead, he's telling us there is no origin to who he is. There was a time for the origin of his humanity when he, and he's going to tell us about that, when he became flesh in verse 14, but of his essence. There is no beginning. So what is John telling us? John is telling us that this Jesus, Mary, did you know that this one that you're about to bear, that this one is divine, that he is God, that he is, he's telling us about the deity of Christ. In the beginning, Christ already was. The fullness of God dwelt in him. So he wasn't just... You know, somebody born that, 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 that God was on him, or just God entered into him, he was already God. Made flesh. Uh, Paul explains it like this in Colossians 2.9. He says, for in him, he's talking about Jesus. He says, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when Jesus was here, he was fully human, but he wants you to know that this person was also fully God. And in him, Paul says, dwelt the fullness. Now, full is full, right? When something is full, it's when you can't put anything else in it. It wasn't just part. The fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwelt in him. The writer of Hebrews later says it this way in Hebrews 1.3. He's talking about Jesus. And he says, who being the brightness of his glory... And the express image of his person. He's talking about God. He's the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. Right? We know that happened on the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who Jesus is. He is the express image of his person. Of his nature. Of his essence. The exact representation to us of all that is God. You're not going to know God any other way except through Jesus. Now, even in Romans 1, Paul testifies that nature itself has a witness. It does testify. But you can't learn all you need to know about God from nature. Uh. There's just a conscience that's built into us that helps us feel God. And, and, and part of the, 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 the law of God is even there. But you can't rely on conscience to help you know all that much about God. There are books and you can read and everything, but you're never going to be able in your mind to comprehend enough to really know enough about God you're never going to understand or you're never going to know God until you know Christ. And you know him in a personal relationship where he's your Lord. His presence actually enters into you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the very presence of God in you. It's not an it, not some impersonal force. It's God the Spirit living in you of the same essence of the Father and the Son. Living inside you so that you know God. This is the only way. So... 
uh, he's laying this out here for us. So he, uh, in the beginning, he uh, was with God, is God. Uh, but he says, and he's with God. So, so when he says he is God, he's with God, which is it? John, both. Both, because uh, when he says with God, it's not in the sense of being in the company of God, but in the sense of like the most intimate communion. Notice the deep mystery that John is laying out here of the triune nature of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The word Jesus is with God, denoting deep communion, but also he is God. More properly, at that time, before the beginning of time, he was already God. He is God, but there's a noted distinction between the Father and the Son with God. That's what that is. Is God with God? But he also tells us that in him, in verse 4, was life. And the life was the light of men. He is the light and the life. That's who he is. And it's interesting because I believe every word of this book is inspired. And as we're called, some of us, to teach and to unpack that so that we understand it, we look at each word. Now, it wasn't originally written in English. That's why we have various different English translations, okay? It was originally written in Koine Greek. And I find it interesting that the word translated life here is a word you may be familiar. It's kind of become popular as a name these days, Zoe means life. It is interesting that he used that word instead of bios, which we get biology from, because what he's talking about here is eternal life, not just physical life. If it was just physical life, maybe he would have used the word bios, but he used the word zoe. Uh, so life and light here are of the same essence. This is the life. Well, the first of God's creative acts was what? Let there be light. And that happened before he created the sun and the moon and the stars. He is that light, John's telling us. And that light and life are the same essence. This is real life. Now, listen to me. You might have physical life. You might have bios. But do you have Zoe? Do you have the real essence of life that can only come from the life giver, God himself? So there are a lot of people who are alive physically, but they're not really alive. That's why later on Paul tells us that we were all dead in trespasses and sins and we've been made alive through Christ. You say, well, I was alive when I was a sinner and I'm alive now. You're talking about physical life. The thing about it was is you didn't have the real essence of what God wants to give you as far as life when you were lost and when you were away from God. And so what he wants to give you is real life. And it's amazing to me that so many of us fall into the trap of trying to do things our own way, ignoring the way the creator and designer has laid out life and everything else. And we want to do our own thing, our own way, and, and, and think that we're just going to, I got to, and I've had this happen, especially when I was younger. And I would try to witness to my friends. And people say, well, I'm going to get serious about all that someday, but you got to live first. No, you don't got to live. You got to die. None of us have to live, but we do all have to die. But you're never going to truly live until you find life from the life giver. And Satan is a liar, and he's a deceiver, and he wants to block you any way that he can from experiencing real life. That is life overflowing. Abundant life, we sometimes call it. This is eternal life. 
that we have from him. He is the light. He is the life. The life and the light. Uh, so there's an obvious play here that comes from the Old Testament. And I love seeing how all this Old Testament scripture fulfilled in the New Testament, how it all ties together. Um, in fact, Psalm 36, 9 says this. The psalmist says, in praising and worshiping God, for with you is the fountain of what? Life. He's the life source. He's the life giver. In your light do we see light. He is the life. He is the light. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. In him was life, and the life is the light of mankind. You see how that ties together? Uh, later on, Jesus said it this way in John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have what? The light of what? The light of life. He is the light and the life. Life and light are held in contrast to darkness, the darkness of sin and death. Light and life are held in contrast to the darkness of sin and death. The light shines, and it's in the present tense in the Greek. It means it's continually shining on in the darkness. And then he says... The light shines in the darkness, in verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, some translations say comprehend it. The original word there means to seize or to grasp, and it certainly could be translated that your mind sees or grasps it, that you don't understand it. And true, that is true. Sometimes I think the Lord leaves things this way where it could be translated in our language a couple of ways because it, doesn't mean, it means all those things. There are people who just don't, don't get it. They just don't want to grasp it. But the idea of grasping as far as overcoming something, subduing something. And, and, and that's another thing he wants to point out. The darkness is not able to overcome it. Listen, we live in a world where there is all kinds of chaos. There's all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. There's all kinds of terroristic acts. There's plagues. There's pandemics. There's uh, all types of uh, weirdness. I'm just telling you, there's more weird people in the world than ever before. Have you noticed that? I mean, it just seems like people are getting... Now, I know some of you that came of age in the 60s and the 70s, there was some weird stuff then, too. I mean, and even, even, even the young people that, that are pretty weird now look back and say, Wow, y'all were weird. But there's more of it now because, you know, somebody's weird over here. Maybe other people don't catch their weirdness. But now with social media, somebody does something weird and everybody else starts being that way with them. And you know how difficult that is for us normal folks? I realize not everybody is going to be normal like what I am, right? <laughs> but, the, but we live in this kind of day. But we can, we can, you know what, we can find comfort and we can find peace. We can relax and we can focus on what God wants us to focus on. And that is letting his light shine through us. Spreading his truth and his love and his gospel. And we don't have to be uh, anxious and fretting and stewing over all these things. Because the darkness is never going to be able to overcome the light. You know, we often say this. We read to the back of the book and we know the winner is uh, he already is it's already done it's just got to play out in time 
We, we have the victory. Now, now there's some things we're going to have to walk through between now and then, but we already have it. It's not like going to happen. It's already a real thing. Um, darkness does not displace light. Light displaces darkness, right? You get it. You see that. So you can be in a dark room, and the light is on in the next room, and you open the door, and it lets light in. Light comes in. It doesn't happen the other way around. When you open the room, the door to the room that's dark, darkness doesn't spill in. Light always overcomes darkness. And there are people that are caught in the darkness of sin and Satan's delusion. But the light will overcome. Keep that in mind this week as you're living and trying to be a witness for Christ. As you're dealing with all types of craziness and weirdness and wickedness out there. Please remember that. So he is the eternal word. He always has been. He is God. He is God the Son of the same essence with the Father but a distinct person. Was God or is God with God, and he is the life and the light. He's not only the eternal word, Jesus is also the creative word we find out here. Because there's two facts regarding Christ's deity that stand out here. And first is that Christ himself was not created. That stands out here. He already was in the beginning. And the second thing is, not only was he not created, everything that is created was created by him. And that's not just on earth, that's the whole universe, the galaxies, the solar systems. All of it was spoken into existence by him out of nothing. That's what the Bible teaches. So the father was the architect, but the son was the primary agent of creation. And you see that come out here. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and verse 6. He says, yet for us there is one God. The Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The Father is the architect, the Son is the agent, and working together in creation. So He was not created. He is the Creator. He did not merely create all things for God. He created all things as God. All things came into being through him. The word spoke. And all things came into existence. As creator, he is the origin, the source of life. He is the creative word. He is the eternal word. But praise God, he is also uh, not just the creative word, but he's, he's the one who holds things together. He didn't just create it and leave it out there. Right? He's the sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created. There it is again. How much evidence do you need? Here it is once again. All things were created by him. In heaven, that's the universe, and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him. And he is before all things. That is, he is higher. And in him all things hold together. He not only created 
it's not only made by him and all things are coming to him eventually. He's going to rule and reign till all things are put under his feet. But he's the one who holds everything together. You know, and here's the real thing. As science gets to, to, to making more and more discoveries, it just supports what Scripture says when you understand it properly. Some people, you know, their, their, their minds don't want to grasp, don't want to comprehend. They're in darkness. But when you even see how the atom is, and in the nucleus of the atom, you have these protons, right? And they have what kind of charge? Come on now. Uh, you know, former science teachers, this makes you feel great, doesn't it? You know, it's just like the pastor's like, we talked about that, you know. Um, yeah, positive. And, and because of that electrical thing, we understand that the electrons orbit around because of that pull. Uh, they have negative charge. But you have some of these atoms have many protons packed together. So they've always had the question and the study of what keeps those protons packed together in the nucleus of that atom because if you have two positively charged things, they tend to repel each other. In other words, why are atoms not flying apart? They can't explain that. How do they hold together? In fact, whenever they do that, that's an atomic event, right? right? Okay, not good, not good at all. But how is it that in the nucleus of the atom, these protons are there tightly, <laughs> uh, but, but they don't repel? What holds it together? What holds the atoms together? Right here, verse 17 does. In him, all things hold together. There's a force that they can't discover. They haven't discovered. They don't want to discover. But we've discovered it. It's Christ. He's the creative word of God. He's not only that, but he's also the incarnate word. Now, incarnate means to be in flesh, right? That's what that word, it's an old word, right? If you know some Spanish, you know, uh, carne means like meat or flesh. This is getting weird, I, I guess, so maybe I'm a little weird. But if you're going to have chili con carne, right? Or how about queso con carne? You're going to have cheese with meat. You're going to have cheese dip. With me. No, not queso. Queso. You don't want that. That's not right. You just shouldn't do that. You should keep them separate. <laughs> so chili con carne is chili with meat, right? Not just beans. If you're from Texas, you say beans have no place in chili, right? My Texas friends are very passionate about that. Real chili is not supposed to have beans in it, okay? But you can feed more people if you throw a bunch of beans in there, true? But, but carne means, you know, flesh or, you know, in that case, meat. And, and so this comes from the old word. Incarnate means Christ in flesh. He was the word in flesh. And we see that in verse 14 when it says, And the word became flesh, became human, and actually dwelt among all of us. These verses are the climax of all that John's been re leading up to in this prologue. Up to this point, we've been told that the word is a person who is eternal who is in fact a member of the Godhead. He was there at creation. Indeed, he is the creator. He is distinct from, yet intimately in fellowship with God the Father. He is the source of life and light. Yet we've not been told who this person is. And now we're told in verse 14 through 18, the word became flesh. This one John has been introducing is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So it didn't just start there in a cave probably in Bethlehem. It didn't just start with the angel's visit to Mary way back there in, in Nazareth. It started in eternity past forever ago. But there came a point 
in what we call time, in real time on planet Earth, that it really happened and he became real flesh. Now you have to understand that part of what John is combating here is by the time he wrote this, there were already a lot of false teachers putting their own, own bend and twist. And Jesus said it would be that way. Paul said it would be that way. And it's amazing that even during the time that the apostles who were with Jesus were alive on earth, there were so many false teachers teaching it and getting it wrong. And they wrote stuff, and the early church father says, that's heresy, we reject it. And, and so what's weird is then later on you have people like in our day uh, with movies like The Da Vinci Code, remember that? And they'll talk about these lost books of the Bible, these lost. They weren't lost. They were known to the early church fathers, and they were rejected by them as heresy. So there were many who didn't believe Jesus was actually in a real body. There were many in that time, there were Gnostics and there were others who did not really believe that. John is making it clear that he's really God, but he was really in the flesh. He really had a physical body. He's the one that John the Baptist bore witness of. He tells us that right here. And he's the one who is greater than all. He's greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, he's greater than me. He came after me, but he's greater than me because he was before me. Now you're like, wait a minute, John. We've read this story, and we know you were born at least six months before uh, he was, right? Probably. But he said he was before me. John began to get it, to realize he always existed before me, and he's above me. Right, so so he's greater than than uh, than the law, because he tells us here that that the law was given through Moses. Hey, that was good. And what the law did, Paul tells us later, was it exposed the fact that we can't measure up. It exposes the fact that we're sinners and we need a savior. That's why the law had built into it the sacrifices, where we identified with the fact that I'm a sinner and I deserve death as the animal sacrifice. The animals died. Wages of sin is death. And they had to be repeated because they were never good. They were all pointing to the Lamb of God. And when John saw Jesus come along to be baptized, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. That is the Lamb that God gives as the substitute for our sin. And Abraham went up on the mountain one day with his son Isaac. And God said, Give him back to me. That was very unlike God to ask for. In fact, later on in the law, human sacrifice was absolutely forbidden. But God asked him to do this. But Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, even though he wasn't, as you read his story, perfect. But he believed God, and later on, Hebrews tells us that he believed God so much that through Isaac, the promised son that God gave him and Sarah, that through his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations, not just their nation, but all the nations. And we know Paul tells us that that seed, that descendant, was Jesus and Abraham didn't know all this, but he knew enough to know this is God's promise. And he believed God so much that he told the guys, we will come back. You guys wait here. We're going to go up there and worship, and we will come back. Writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed God so much that if he would have killed Isaac, that God would have brought him back to life. Hebrews chapter 11. And so he had faith. But, and, and then through the law, he exposed, God exposed our sin. But that's all the law could do. Paul said the law was powerless to help us. If you're counting on your good works or just trying to good, do good deeds to get you to heaven, you'll never do it. You can never measure up. You can't do enough to make up and undo what's already been done. The only way you could get there on your own is to be absolutely as perfect as Jesus himself. And guess what? All have sinned and fall short of that perfection of the glory of God. 
So we're all, we've all flunked. All of us are in the same boat. All of us are disqualified. That's why we need the gift that Christ came to give on the cross where he died as our substitute like the little lamb that God provided as a substitute to Abraham that day, you remember? And he didn't have to offer Isaac. It was an illustration that one day God himself was going to actually offer his son to be the substitute for you and I so that we could have forgiveness and our sins be paid for and have this life. That's the gift we're celebrating above everything else. That's full of grace and truth. So the law was a revelation of God written in stone, but you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of God manifest in human flesh who tabernacled among us. He is the full and the final revelation of God. Now the translation where it says he became flesh, the word became flesh, um, is right on with the Greek. Now, if you're reading the Old King James, it says, was made. That's not quite as good a translation because uh, he, he, he was not made because he already existed. The only way you could say that is he was made to be flesh when he became flesh. So he became. He already was. He wasn't made. So the Greek word rendered dwelt, he dwelt among us, could literally be translated tabernacle. Tabernacle is a tent. He tabernacled among us. And this isn't a coincidence because John's playing upon Old Testament history and imagery. Because you remember that tent, that tabernacle, was a visible representation of God's presence to his people in the Old Testament. Now we have something much better. Uh, How much better our Lord's being here in the flesh than the Old Testament tabernacle was. See, God's glory was once displayed by means of that tabernacle. In fact, let's go grab a verse. Can can we do that right quick? Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, when they first did this, it says they put up this, this tent of meeting. The tabernacle says, Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And he tells us right here with that imagery in mind that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, the The only begotten sometimes is translated. The Greek word is monogenes. It means literally one of a kind. His unique son. There's not a son like this. He's his one and only. And we saw his glory. So at the incarnation, God tabernacled among his people by means of his son. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a spirit when he ministered on earth. uh, Nor was he an illusion. He was real. John and the other disciples each had a personal experience that convinced them of the reality of the body of Christ. In fact, and when he starts off his letter, 1 John, he says that which we've seen and we've touched and we've experienced, the, the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. Even though John's emphasis here is on the deity of Christ, he makes it clear that the Son of God came in the flesh and was subject to the sinless infirmities that any of us feel in the flesh. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. John points out that he wept and that he bled. He was really here. How was the word made flesh? Well, it was by the miracle that we call the virgin birth. That's how it happened. 
He took on himself sinless human nature. Now, all of us, we're descended from Adam. We're all sons and daughters of Adam. Paul talks about this in Romans. And uh, we inherit that tendency to sin, that fallen nature from Adam. You don't have to teach your kids how to pinch and to bite and to lie. They just get that. Right? I, remember, I can remember my earliest memories. That talk of, can now you be good? Can you be good? You be good. Nobody had to tell me to be bad. <laughs> that came natural. That's the only thing that came natural. Being good did not come natural. Why? We inherited sinful nature. But Jesus didn't because he was perfect, sinless humanity. He was, as remember way back there in Genesis 3, who did he say was going to come and crush the enemy's head? The seed of the woman. And if you know your biology, wait a minute, the male has the seed, the female has the egg, right? But he said the seed of the woman right there was prophesying that there would be one born of a woman. No male seed is of the Holy Spirit. So Christ is the second man. Adam's the first man. The word Adam in Hebrew means what? Man or mankind. And so the first Adam came and he blew it. We all became sinners. The second Adam, the second man, Paul tells us, came down. And through him, we might have life. And so this is how this happened, through the virgin birth. That's why the virgin birth is crucial to the whole story of the gospel. The word was not an abstract concept of philosophy, but a real person that could be seen and touched and heard. Christianity is Christ, and Christ is God, as it's been said. The most obvious and important connection John makes is this. Are you ready? The God who created the universe is the one who was found lying in the manger in Bethlehem. The God who created the universe. Wow. John wants us to know that the Jesus he introduces is the Messiah, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament. More than this, the Jesus who is the Messiah is the Jesus who is God. Our Lord did not begin to be in Bethlehem. He did not have his origin in Genesis 1 and 2 when the world was created or just before the world was created. But when it was created, he was already there. He existed. He was there with God. He was there as God. In the pagan religions... The gods have come down to earth in some form, but never was there an incarnation like that of our Lord. So, too, in some false religions, men are promised that they would, might become gods, but never that God would take on humanity, as John describes here, and redeem all people. He is the incarnate word. But one final word before we go. He is the final word. That's the final word. Jesus! I've got a final word for you. Jesus. In these last days, Hebrews 1.1 tells us God has spoken to us through his son. Let's look at it. 
Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke in various means and various ways to the prophets in the, early, in the early days in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he's calling these the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the final word. In these days, there is Jesus and there is nothing else. There is no one else. If you won't listen to Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. In fact, in Acts, the apostles said this, Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's the one who reveals God to us. That's what he says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You can't know God except through Jesus because he's the only one who's revealed him. As to his essence, God is invisible. As I said, you can see some of God revealed in nature and in his mighty works in history, but you can't see God himself. Jesus Jesus Christ came to reveal God to us, for he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. The express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. Jesus has made him known, as John tells us here. He has the English uh, 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 word uh, here uh, it, that we get from the word made known is the word exegesis. He's, he's, he's explained him. He's, he's unfolded him uh, to us. Christ explains God to us and interprets him for us. We simply cannot understand God apart from knowing Christ. You cannot know and have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. It was true then, it's true now. Unless you know Jesus you can talk about God all you want, but you can have a relationship with him. Unless you know Christ. How do I come to know him? By realizing who he is and what he did. And I realize I can't save myself and that I'm a sinner and that I need to be saved. And that I repent of my sin. That is, I not only confess it and acknowledge it, but I turn from it to him. I'm turning from my own ways to him. Uh, I'm making a change, a turn. And I'm trusting in him totally. And to live the way he tells me to live by his strength. And I'm going to grow in that. And I'm going to trust him completely for my salvation for the forgiveness of sins which he's already paid for i might as well claim it right that's how simple it is and if you haven't done that you can do it today right now before we leave and you can leave here with assurance that you have eternal life because you have christ see the incarnation means that god added unfallen humanity to undiminished deity you want to know that's the fancy way unfallen humanity to undiminished deity It does not in any way mean that our Lord's deity was diminished or set aside. It does mean that certain manifestations of his glory were veiled while he was here and that some of the use of his powers were voluntarily restrained. But I want to tell you something. For all eternity past, Christ was in heaven. One with the Father and the Spirit sharing in the glory. But he chose not to stay there. He came to be born in the flesh and was laid in a manger like a feeding trough in Bethlehem. But he didn't stay there. He grew up and lived a perfect life and proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. But he knew it needed to happen in our hearts first. So he didn't stay there. He went to a Roman cross and he died on that cross as a payment and as a sacrifice for all of our sins. They nailed him there as our substitute. But he didn't stay there either. He died there and they took his body down and they placed his body in a borrowed tomb. But he didn't stay there either. He rose again 
And he ascended back to the Father's right hand. But guess what, folks? I've got to remind you that he's not going to stay there either. The Bible says he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. And every eye is going to behold him. And he is going to rule and he is going to reign. And he is going to judge the earth. And isn't it good to know that the one who is the judge is the same one who came to save? Let's pray. Father.